Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This week on the Mike Wise Show, our guest is one of the legendary figures in basketball over the past half century, and he's standing by. But first, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thank you, Darlene. This week's guest is the very definition of a wise man. He's Jerry Colangelo, the legendary executive who has more influence on the game of basketball than anyone on this planet. And that is not just hype. He has been in charge of USA Basketball since 2005. He served as chairman of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. He was a previous owner of the Phoenix Suns, Arizona Diamondbacks. Jerry Jerry was the youngest general manager in pro sports when he became GM of the Suns at the age of 29. He acquired and traded Charles Barkley. He actually coached the Suns back in the 70s and was a four-time executive of the year. And he's even a baller. He was even a baller himself playing for Illinois when he was a two-time Big Big Ten honorable mention. I know that's a long resume, uh, Mr. Colangelo, but welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you. It's been a while. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad to speak to you. I spoke to Craig Miller, obviously, at USA Basketball, and um, he uh, he said, oh, Jerry's Jerry's great. I couldn't imagine working with anybody better the last uh, the last 20 odd years and whatnot over this. And I go, well, I go, I'm going to talk to him. And he goes, he goes, I can't give you any dirt. I'm too loyal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. Kind of him. I don't think there is any. Um, you you wore number 23 at Illinois. I always felt that Michael Jordan copied you by wearing number 23 for an Illinois based team. Well, at least my family feels that way, you know, that I had at first, but uh, I acquiesce. You know, Michael uh, took the number and did incredible things more than anyone ever. Mm. And so uh, I was happy to see him in that number, quite honestly. Yeah, we'll get to USA basketball in a bit, but I think of most of your NBA years with the Suns, and I, you became GM, I think, in 68 when they were just getting started. How, how did you become such a key leader in the organization at such a young age? Well, you know, it's kind of, we have to go backwards, and I'll tell you about where things were in the NBA back in 1966. Uh, I went to work for someone who had a dream, and that was to bring pro basketball back to Chicago. There were only nine teams in the NBA at, at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I was still playing in a semi-pro league for 50, 75 bucks a game uh, came in handy because I had a couple of kids and a third one on the way, uh, married in college while I was still playing ball. And yeah. so um, he he knew me by name recognition. Uh, in, in, in the Midwest, I had name recognition as an athlete, as a baseball pitcher. Uh, Jim Bowden pitched behind me through high school and American Legion ball, and I was a prospect until I threw my arm out. Um, but basketball became my my passion. And uh, so because I had transferred from Kansas, where I was scheduled to play with Will Chamberlain, um, he quit and signed with the Globetrotters. And so I transferred to Illinois. And there I met my wife of 60 years. And I maintained that name recognition in the Midwest. And the gentleman who wanted me to go to work for him knew me by that connection. And so for uh, six months, we hustled trying to get a team. We met with Commissioner Walter Kennedy. We met with prospective investors like Lamar Hunt, who became an original investor. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we had like six people in the front office. And I did everything. I mean, I was scouting. I was doing all the marketing. 
Uh, ben Bentley, if you remember that name, was mm-hmm. our PR guy. He's a legendary Damon Runyon kind of a PR person yeah. who's no longer with us. But it was a great start. I was a young guy in what was to become a growth industry. Didn't realize it uh, because when the Bulls came into existence and over dinner one night, I actually picked the name and had someone do the logo um, two weeks before we were officially awarded the franchise. And Wait, this is kind I, of I didn't know this. You came up with the Bulls name and logo? Yeah, we were having dinner. Dick Klein, by name, is the, the gentleman I'm referring to. He said, Jerry, we're, we, we're going to have a team potentially in two weeks. They're going to vote on it. He said, we don't have a place to play. Well, that was because the Wirtz family, who owned the old Chicago stadium that I played in as a college guy, um, didn't want pro basketball. They didn't think it would make it in the city. <laughs> and so the only option was the amphitheater, which was the old stockyard inn the stockyards. So over dinner one night, I said, Dick, I've been thinking about that. We need something that truly represents Chicago. You know, I was thinking of a tough logo, blah, blah, blah. And I said, if we have to play at the amphitheater, what about bulls? He said, that's it. So, you know, today (laughs) companies pay millions of dollars for naming rights or naming. Somebody comes up with a brand. Uh, Yeah. So, The next day I had a buddy of mine do the logo. The same logo exists today. The only logo in the NBA that's never changed is the Bulls logo. So here I was in the first year of the Bulls, young guy, I'm out on the road scouting and Red Holtzman kind of took me under his wing. He was scouting for the Knicks at the time. And I hung around with Buddy Jeanette and Red Holtzman and four or five guys who, who were out scouting. Not everyone scouted in the NBA at that time. Mm. And so I remember a night in Kansas City at the NAI tournament. Each day we watched eight games. Each night we went to the Italian Gardens restaurant around the corner from the old Yulebach <laughs> Hotel. And we sat at a round table and I just sat and listened to the wise older guys, you know, tell stories. And on the third night, Red turned to me and he says, hey, kid, you're going to be OK in this league. Well, what do you mean, right? He said, you keep your mouth shut because you don't know anything. <laughs> pretty, pretty good advice. I, I have passed on to number of, a number of people over the years. And so here I was in what was to become a real growth industry. As a matter of fact, the next year in 67, Seattle and San Diego were at it. And San Diego now is Houston. You know, there's been yeah. moves. Seattle's no longer uh, Seattle, uh, they're Oak City. Um, and so Sam Schulman, uh, the owner of the Seattle team, flew to Chicago and was trying to lure me to come to Seattle. And I just wasn't ready for that. I said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a Chicago kid. I'm happy where I am. Um, and by, by the way, one of the reasons I like Bulls, outside of the fact that there was a tie-in with the slaughterhouse, the Bulls, excuse me, the yep. cows, the pigs, the whole thing. Uh, being a Chicago fan, I said, the newspapers like short names, Cubs, Sox, Bears, Bulls. It's perfect. It fits in like a glove. <laughs> so, so anyway, two weeks later, we're awarded a franchise. Now, I'm in the offices on LaSalle, LaSalle and Wacker, the LaSalle Wacker building. Klein is in New York. The media knows nothing about what we've been doing. We did this all undercover. We wanted it that way. So as soon as he called to say we're in, I sent a telegram. That was the way to communicate with the media. And it said an important sports announcement of both local and national interests will be made tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. at the Water Tower and signed the Chicago Bulls. And when they got that, they didn't know what the hell that meant, to be sure. But that's what I did. And then I took news releases that I had pre-prepared, put them in the car, and I had to drive to Benton Harbor, Michigan to play in a game in that North American League that I was. And I had just been traded. How much are you? Guy, how much how much are they giving you in that league? Uh, it's 50, 75 bucks a game. Um, <laughs> a guy who played with uh, Elgin Baylor at Seattle was a guy named Sweet Charlie Brown, one of the great uh, high school you know, stars ever in Chicago. 
And I got traded for Sweet Charlie. I, I felt pretty good about that <laughs> at the time. But here's the end of that story. The last competitive game I played was against the Chicago team. I was the only white guy on an all-black Chicago team, and I get traded. Okay? So now I'm playing Chicago that night, the night before we're going to have this announcement about the Bulls being born. And game goes into overtime. I had, had a big game. I had 37. I hit the game winner to win it. I go in the locker room afterwards, and there's a blizzard outside. Manny Jackson, one of my former teammates at yeah, University man. of Illinois, had gathered all the, uh, the uh, valuables, including my wallet and keys and money. And he inadvertently took off. He wanted to beat the weather if he could. And I'm stuck. I'm stuck. Couldn't get in my car. I had to get into my, I figured out how to get into my car, start the car. And I trudged home, no sleep, changed clothes, continued into the city, passed out the releases. And that's how I, I was, uh, that's how I was born into the NBA. What a story. That is great. I want to say there were a couple threads of that story that came out during the 1993 finals yes. uh, with Phoenix and Chicago. And what a, I, I just listening to you talk about how uh, th there was no interest in pro basketball in Chicago and who, who could possibly fill up the United Center. I mean, I'm sorry, who could fill up uh, the old Chicago stadium uh, that was an NBA team? And to hear the hear the roar when Michael was announced during those finals and Charles, and it was such a soup. It was it was really one of, um, after the Magic Bird finals, it was one of the great sort of, you, you realize that each of, the, each of these guys was a brand and each of their franchises was was a brand. And it was just such a... What a what what a uh, I guess in your in in it must have been wonderful for you because it's a validation of 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 all your hard work over the years at that time. Well, um, I, I love the fact that uh, Chicago was successful. You know that that's my home. Uh, that's where you know I grew up. That's where everything happened for me. That was the beginning. Uh, if, once you get your own team, things change. Obviously. Yeah, that's your first priority. But if I if we couldn't win, it's Chicago. You know, in my case, I was pulling for them always. And uh, it was just like when when we were awarded a baseball team. I was sitting at Wrigley Field during that 93 um, playoff season that we, when we were there to play the mm -hmm. Bulls. But I went to a Cubs game, the first night game I had seen in Wrigley Field in my lifetime. And uh, I just thought to myself, this 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 could be great in Phoenix. Maybe we're ready. Mm. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, Joe Garagiola Jr. Uh, his his dad, of course, was senior and mm -hmm. uh, legendary guy. You know, one of the great baseball comics of all time. Uh, had a long career. He and Yogi Berra. I don't know if you're aware of this. Grew up in on on the hill in St. Louis, across the street from one another. From I didn't kids. know that. I, I'm, were, I'm used to I'm used to uh, Joe Gargiola with Tony Kubek, Tony Kubek, and 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 on the announcing uh, right. side of it. So so Joe Jr., who was living in Phoenix, and a couple of others came to me, asked me, no, said to me, "We think we're ready for baseball, and you're the only guy we believe that can make it happen." And so I said, "Look, I'm I don't I'm not so excited about baseball right now. They were having trouble with collective bargaining." You know, like, is that new in baseball? It's always been that way. But I read a book called Lords of the Realm, um, written by uh, John Hellyer, who wrote for the Wall Street Journal, I believe, at the time. And it was called, um, um, it was about collective bargaining 101. And the Lords of the Realm was the name of the book. And I read the book and I came to the conclusion, now I know why things are the way they are, because the owners gave up every time in collective bargaining and the players union was the strongest one in sports. Then I met with Don Fair. He came to my offices. He was the head of the union for, for baseball and spent a day with him. Then I spoke with Bud Selig who owned Milwaukee and George Steinbrenner with the Yankees and Jerry Reinsdorf with the White Sox. And I concluded that I think it had bottomed out and it might be a good time to, to take the jump, take the leap. So I decided to do that. 
And so, you know, four years later, we had a franchise. And uh, that was in 95 when I made that announcement. It was actually 98 when we had our first season. And four years later, we won the World Series. And in one of the most memorable World Series of all time, I think many of much of the nation was rooting for New York because of the terrorists. But but when it came down to it, I mean, the way uh, the way that that whole uh, World Series proceeded and beating Mariano Rivera in the last, I mean, it was just it was a miracle. It was uh, you you couldn't you couldn't make it up. It was it was so great for the country. It was. I look at the great thing about that is. I look at when you came to Phoenix, and as I recall somewhere, someone said to me once, you know, Jerry Colangelo didn't start out that rich. And I go, well, I know that. He he worked for the Bulls as a market. He goes, no, he went to Phoenix with about 200 bucks in his pocket. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, and he he was hoping to get the career. He was hoping to get the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Luau Cinder pick, and he ends up. Uh, Oh, and I felt, I remember Brick Patino telling me once, if he'd known that, he would the lot of the ping pong balls wouldn't have broke for Tim Duncan with the Celtics. He would never would have taken that job. You were it was almost 50 50 in a shoot, yes. you know. And, and well, I mean, I want to say, uh, Neil Walk, very good player who sadly passed away in 2015. Boy, the, the you must have just been on the floor thinking, I could have had Kareem. So, let me tell you a quick story on that. On the, on the yeah. floor. first of all. I came here with $300 in my pocket, not 200 <laughs> Facts. Nine, nine suitcases, three kids, two, four, <laughs> and six. Brian, my son Brian was two years old. Oh. And I came and I never looked back. And I saw this as a blank canvas in Arizona yeah. that whatever you do would be something done for the first time. And that was challenging, but I love challenges. And this is as big as it could be. So, you know, we thought, we drafted players, young players like Gail Goodrich, Dick Van Arsdale, Dick Snyder, um, and others to build around Jabbar because we were going to win the flip. I just felt we would. Milwaukee went with Fred Hetzel and Wayne Embry and older guys who were, you know, they had a year or two left. And so I called the commissioner and I said, can we make the call, you know, the flip of the coin? He said, well, if Milwaukee agrees, that's fine. I called Milwaukee. They said, sure. We had a contest in the the papers here and 51.2% said call heads. I wanted them to be a part of that big decision one way or the other. (laughs) So uh, you you could have taken a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Look, the day of the flip, um, the commissioners in New York, the Milwaukee people are in Milwaukee. We're in Phoenix. Uh, if I can just visualize this, the coin goes up in the air and it's flipping, going up, and then it starts to come down and it lands in Kennedy's hand, heads, because we had called heads. And he flipped it over and said tails. I just want to say this, this little move right here was the difference in the championship that quickly. So... After dealing with the media, I took a ride for three hours around Phoenix, which was a lot different than it looks today. Um, Came back to the office and I said, now we have to do it the hard way. And here's what we did. In one season, I acquired Connie Hawkins from the ABA. I traded traded and, and got Paul Silas for Gary Greger, who was our first pick from South Carolina. Um, We added a few other pieces we had drafted Neil Walk. Jim Fox was our starting center, and Neil was a backup originally. But he eventually averaged 20 and 12, Neil Walk. He really did. And then along comes uh, uh, West Paul and uh, Alvin Adams. Right. But, but at the, the time, though, you're right. You're, season, you're yeah, right. That second season, I ended up firing my good friend Johnny Kerr at midseason, and I stepped in. And we had a good run. And we make the playoffs in our second year and face Baylor, West, and Chamberlain in the playoffs. And I have them down three games to one. And they came back and beat us in the seventh game. And I, I, I could tell the story. I said, look, our problem was if we had any coaching at all, you know, we might have won. But I was the coach. I could laugh at myself. And so oh, that's a tough 3-1 kid. That, that would have been a huge upset. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was year two. And really, when I look at the success of the Suns franchise in my 40 years, it was it was extraordinary. We never won a championship, but we had the fourth best record in the history of the NBA. We, As you know, we were always right there. Yeah. Should have, could have won two or three times, but it didn't happen. Yeah, with Alvin Adams, Garfield Hurd, Westy. I mean, you, you had a good, great rock. It's almost one of those, um, I always talk about heavyweights uh, born during Ali, Foreman, and Frazier. And it's almost yeah. like basketball teams uh, being born during Michael and uh, uh, the, and Larry and Magic and Dr. J and all those players. And Correct. Geez, Correct. It's, it's uh, you're, you're almost, but gosh. The, um, so close. And you had so many great players over the years. I the, the, I just look at it like that. There's that one day where when, when do you, when's that one fork in the road moment where you wake up and go, you know what? I, I don't think I'm going to worry about having three hundred dollars in my pocket again. I can actually put my kids through school. Uh, was there a moment where you either made a deal or something happened where you, you began to see? that this was, uh, this was going nowhere but up. Well, Mike, you know, I've, uh, you know, I was an athlete. I was a fan. Um, when I had the opportunity, incredible opportunity to be involved in management. And then he's even as, as a 28 year old kid, when I came here, I asked for an option to buy the team. I didn't have, you, I didn't have two nickels. But I asked for that option. I, I got it. That was 68. In 87, the opportunity presented itself. And I exercised that. By that time, I had established myself in the community. The banks were behind me. Business people were behind me. And so we were able to do this for $44 million. We bought the Suns for 44.5. Originally, the franchise cost $2 million. It was absentee ownership. I had sole responsibility, um, uh, uh, you know, in terms of being able to make all the decisions. So I got a great education in the trenches. Mm. And so I had, I had a great opportunity and I seized upon it. And in 87, when that all happened, I said, we build a, an arena, a new one downtown. Now, here's the other thing. I took our best player, Larry Nance, traded him to Cleveland for Kevin Johnson, Ty Corbin, Mark West and a first that turned out to be Dan Marley. And I also signed the first unrestricted free agent in history, Tom Chambers, that summer. And we went from 29 to 55 in the conference finals. So, you know, I've been through rebuilds two or three times. And so, you know, the same things usually work. Free agency changed a lot of things. And of course, today it's a whole different I'm glad I came along when I did and I was able to accomplish what I did. Yeah. I'm not sure in today's world uh, I would be that successful. I don't know. Well, I, I, I mean, I look at, obviously, you know this, you're the long, longest serving patriarch of a franchise um, after Red Auerbach, right, which is right. just incredible to me. But beyond that, um, and going doing all the other things, I, I think there was something about you and even now, I think you, you remain as contemporary as you are old and that you could still spot talent. And I wonder if you see some of the, you know, I don't know, no knocks on anybody that hasn't played the game. No knock that anybody doesn't, you know, go to a, go to see a player play in person. But I, I wonder if you think that there's almost too much of a reliance on the analytics world and that maybe maybe it could be half and half. I, I, I always, I see so much of this, the, these young guys deciding when a guy is going to his left, when his guy is going to his right. And frankly played at a very low level myself. I still believe like the one stat I want to always see is how did he do in the last five minutes? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but at any rate, do you, do you, do you look at the, uh, the, the new general manager, the new executive of the NBA and go, you know, you almost are incorporating the numbers too much and not enough of the people. Well, I would say this. I, when analytics became a reality, I never fought it. To me, it was another tool. You know, you're always looking for tools. You know, here in Phoenix, we got into psychological testing early on before all the other franchises did, to the best of my knowledge. You wanted to get as much information as 
as you could. And we had our own, you know, information that would say, I would say to you, the best way to explain it is if you have yellow flags that pop up on a, on a prospect, you know, you, you need to do your due diligence. If you see red flags, chances are they're going to remain red flags and beware because normally uh, it doesn't work out. And we had a couple of those situations over the years, uh, but not many in terms of drafting the wrong person because of issues. And so um, I thought analytics had a role, but I learned this a long time ago, and I still believe this is true. Until you get to the day where you can make an incision in someone's forehead and one over his heart to really know who that person is, then Mm. all the other stuff will take you only so far. What makes a great player great? It's not just his talent. He's got it all. He's, he checks all the boxes. Mentally, he's very tough. He's got a big heart. He's committed. He's competitive. And not everyone, there are a lot of guys with great talent, and they don't, they're missing some things. Or they have their high character. They don't have enough talent. So there's a mix. There's a, there's, there's a role for analytics. And so I buy into it, but I don't, over, I don't overbuy. I just don't. I thought when I covered the 2004 Athens Olympics and um, just being there, I got the sense, not just uh, the world, but it was almost like some of some Americans were disappointed in our game and what we'd sent. And I remember talking to your uh, now you'll be his predecessor, Grant Hill at USA basketball years ago. He said, you know, what I, what I really found insulting was the cattle calls, uh, the AAU cattle calls, because I just never thought that it it, it gave um, players the notion that basketball is giving yourself to the good of the group. It was all about you trying to stand out. And he said that system has brought us where we are today. And, of course, when you took over, I believe you had sold the, the uh, Arizona teams your first year in USA basketball, 2005. Um, I felt like you brought some of that back. There was a sense of this. You have to be about us, not just building your brand when you get here. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when when David Stern called me, I was recovering from prostate cancer in the fall of 04 after having sold the teams, et cetera. And he said, Jerry, would you take over USA basketball after the the debacle in in, uh, Athens? And I'm an instinctive guy. And I immediately said, David, I'll do it. But I have two conditions. He said, what are they? I said, one, full autonomy. I pick the coaches and I pick the players. No more committees, no more politics, because I felt that it happened Mm. in the selection process prior. He said, what's number two? He said, you got it. What's number two? I said, I don't want to hear about a budget. And Mm -hmm. he didn't like that one very much. And I let him rant. And then I said, David, are you finished? He says, yes. I said, well, it's still number two. (laughs) And he acquiesced. He acquiesced. And then I I said to him, don't worry about it. I'll raise the money. I just wanted Mm. the commitment on the front end. By that, I meant I'll sell the sponsorships. I'll Mm. get the support. Because once we get this rolling, it's so. So anyway, the result was the first year we quadrupled the revenues. And then you never, we've never looked back in USA basketball financially. So, so here's the thing. I wanted to change the culture. I needed someone alongside me who could help do that. And, you know, I had a great meeting in Chicago um, in, in 05 of former Olympic coaches and Olympic players. It was a who's who. There were only two coaches going back to 1960 who weren't in the room. Pete Newell, who was recovering from uh, um, uh, cancer and Bobby Knight, who was on some fishing trip and I couldn't get him back. <laughs> and so everyone else was there. And we, we went through, these were all my contemporaries and people that, you know, we, I had a relationship with, and I wanted to hear each of them talk about their experience as an Olympian. What did they see presently? What did they believe needed to happen? So everyone spoke. We spent a whole day and night. And it was an incredible time 
we've, we actually, I put college coach names up on the board, pro coach names on the board. And there are seminal moments that you can't forget. Dean Smith, Coach K's biggest rival in his career, uh, as we were talking about the college coaches, said, there's only one guy up there on the college side who can get job done, and that's Coach K. He's Dean, Dean Smith said that. Dean Smith. Oh. That's why I say it was a seminal moment, yeah. you know, things like that. And wow. so, you know, but Jerry West and Michael Jordan and all these people were there. And we, we had a great time. There were two. This is an interesting little thing. On the coaching side, on the pro side, Popovich got the most support. And the guy who got the second most support on the pro side wasn't anyone coaching. It was Pat Riley who had stepped down as a coach. Wow. He had the second amount, amount of support. And so Popovich and, and uh, Coach K were my two candidates. I went with, ironically, I went with Coach K then. And recently, as you know, before the 16 uh, Olympics in Rio, I wanted to take care of future business. And that was to name uh, the 20 coach, which didn't take place because of COVID. Um, and that was uh, Popovich. So um, we, we had a game plan. And that included me meeting with every player, eyeball to eyeball, talking about the circumstances, talking about why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. I'm proud to be an American. I love this game. It's been great to me. It's, it's really provided for me and my family. I want to continue to give back. And here's how I can do it. I promise you, if you agree to do what I'm about to ask you, it'll be one of the great experiences of your life. Because to represent your country on a world stage is a privilege. Mm. And so they all started buying in. And that's how it all came together. That's a great story. And shoot, if, if the U.S. wins um, this summer in Tokyo, you'll, you'll, you'll retire four for four on your watch as the USA yes. bat, which is, to me, is incredible. And I, I look at it now almost as if one of the as just being an American basketball player and loving the game for so many years, I look at what I, the, the signature moment to me was being there in London in 2012 and, and seeing the guys that were on the 2004 team, like LeBron, I think Carmelo, Dwayne Wade, um, the, and Amari Stoudemire and Amari Stoudemire. Yeah. And seeing those guys go from in 2004, what some people were calling the young knuckleheads who shouldn't have been on the team to these ambassadors, these guys who were mature veterans and cared so much about the game, and also just uh, just just were almost like mentors to all the young players at that point. And right. I just thought to me that was that to me said more about the game and everybody, you know, not even buying jerseys, but, but getting into USA basketball again right. and knowing that it was, it was, it was our signature thing. And now I feel like at, in my lifetime, I believe another country will win the gold medal, but it won't be a disastrous moment. It'll just be this sort of, this is how great our game got internationally right. And, right. and sure we're going to put our best players out there the next time and get it back but darn it this is what happens when your game becomes the world's game so to speak right and that, that Mike that's a good way of uh, putting it because that's exactly what happened you know in 92 in Barcelona when we we had the dream team yeah you know a number a number of those players were at the tail end of their careers they weren't players who were at the top of their game if you remember, three or four of them hardly played in, in the Olympics because yes. of injuries like Larry Bird and John Stockton, et cetera. Um, but there was such a disparity between us and everyone else around the world. Completely. But that also proved to be the tipping point where a number of these guys like the Witski and Ginobili and guys like that who were just starting to come up as young kids, they started believing they could be there. And so it served as a great incentive. And of course, interestingly, we invented the game. We, we sent our coaches, college coaches, primarily some pros out in the world. And they, we educated the other coaches in the other countries yeah. and they loved the game and they started working at the game. And so, 
you know, we, we help create this and that's great for the game. It's great for the game, mm. but you got to stay on course. Yeah. I, when David Stern gave us what sadly turned out to be his last interview in uh, late October of two, uh, 2019, it would have been in a, at his office in um in manhattan and then we sat yeah. an hour and 15 minutes by the way it was the first time i said i said he, he there were all these stories about you know david getting really angry and dropping f-bombs and i said to him you'll love this i said so you could be a bit of an asshole at times and he goes moi and he and he, he he loved it and he sort of went back and forth my favorite part of the interview one of them was the realization of what the game could be in the world when he's talking about meeting with all these these big time Soviet ambassadors in some other uh, Soviet bloc country after a game and thinking that he's going to have some kind of, you know, well, how are we going to get these kids over here that can play? And they look at him and he goes, hey, do you, do you think Sabonis could be good in the NBA? And they realized they wanted to know that these were the heads of the Communist Party. And he said, you know what? It's over. These, we're going to, we're, we're, this game is going to get so much larger. I look at things like, for instance, you know, the, do you feel that the trapezoidal lane used in the international game is the main reason that big men have had to evolve from back to the hoop low post players into guys that need to be able to operate away from the basket and shoot outside? Because if it's Giannis, this year's MVP candidate, you know, Jokic, Jokic, as well as Luka Doncic, and you know all these guys. Back, I look at him now, and I go, as an old school guy that loves to see an inside-outside game, I'm disappointed by the reliance on the three-pointer. But I also realize it's almost part of the future. Yeah, well, it is because it is. But yeah, right. let's let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, in America, um, we don't have enough. The the young players don't get enough time doing drills and being coached. There are so many restrictions on the number of hours per week and what could be done in the summer. None of those things apply in the rest of the world. You know, the guys you mentioned, they play basketball six, eight hours a day. They work on fundamentals that whole time. They know how to set a pick, they shoot, shoot, shoot. And that's one of the things, the more you do repetitiously, the better you can become. So they're skilled in, in um, in, in all of that, our, our guys aren't. Once we started playing above the rim and playing five games a day in AAU basketball, when was there time to work on skills, to mm -hmm. hone your skills? You, there isn't. So we have a different athlete over there and over here. And so, so that's the biggest thing. It's not so much the lane. Um, you know, we used to have a big man's camp. Pete Newell had a big man's yeah, camp. Yeah, it was famous. And all the guys would show up, but but people got away from it because the big guys wanted to shoot threes. Yes. Okay, that's why we don't have back to the basket. There's just a handful. All of the centers in the league are foreign. You're right. Embiid, Giannis, all the great ones. Yeah. Yes, yes. Jokic, you're right. All those guys all are – yeah, we are – we – all, all the all the American big men. I hate to say it, but they're labeled as projects. And yeah, so many well, of that's them. That's because they are. That's because right. they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I you're you're so right about that. It's all about games. It's not about development. And development was the key. Uh, yes. Development was the key to how you got good. Is what, what John Wooden told Bill Walton came on one day and he said, "Yeah, one day I was goofing around in practice and he said, William." Before you learn the tricks of the trade, just learn the trade. <laughs> Pretty good line. I That's love great. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been unbelievable. I could get so many other stories from you. One, um, I want to I want to talk about some of the PR people over the league because they never get any um, they never get any publicity, and they've been so instrumental in my life. And since this show is so listened to, I look at like somebody like Julie Fye. A person who like sort of given her life to the NBA in many ways. I, I met her when I was in college in Sacramento, of all places. And of course, she ended up in your employ for many, many years. I just think people like that are indispensable. They talk about making a league go. People like that make a league go. Absolutely. You know, 
you know, in life, I think it's important to, to remember where you came from. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget the people who helped you along the way. And then in a business, who put the time and the effort in to make things really happen? Julie is one of those. You know, with the sons, she, she was with us for such a long time and still is with the sons that mm. uh, she's an integral part of everything that's happened for the last 30 years, maybe in Phoenix. And I may be off on my years uh, for Julie, uh, but there are some people who have given, you know, their entire careers have been in the NBA that you're referring to without being specific other sure. than Julie. But there are people like that who were with each franchise that had significant roles that they helped build the NBA. Well, Brian McIntyre, Terry Lyon for years, Alex, I mean, all the people who Rick Welts, you know, was all Rick Welts. Rick Welts was great. Um, Shoot. I'm, I'm going back to Zach Bono in Washington. Uh, Oh gosh. So many. I can't even. Ben Bentley in Chicago with the old bulls. Yes. Ben Bentley. Shoot. Tim Hallam now. Yes. I I don't know if you knew Ben, Ben Bentley was a fight promoter. Is really what he was. Was and he? So we hired him the first year of the Bulls. And uh, to show you how times have changed, Mike, you love this. He and I shared an office. He had three phones on his desk. One was his Bulls phone. The second one was his deals phone. He had all <laughs> kinds of deals where he would get names dropped in columns and he'd get shirts or money or whatever. And his third phone was his boxing phone. So I'm sitting there trying to do things, and I hear him. Yeah, just a second. Hey, champ, how you doing? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, he, all day long, he's Oh, man. And then every day, every day he would go across the river, Chicago River, to the newspapers with booze and cigars and deliver them to all the guys. That's oh. how things used to be. And oh, it was that's- okay. Nobody cared. Yeah, it wasn't nope. like you were compromised. No, you were no, just we you were just, to... you, yeah you were just enjoying you were you were being social in the moment. You, Correct. That, uh, he I I got I cut my teeth on boxing in Sacramento and I got I got to work with an old promoter uh, who's now passed away recently, Don Chargan, and uh, they called him Warwick Chargan. He used to host all the big Hispanic fights in the uh, in the old Olympic Auditorium in Los yeah. Angeles, and he had so many stories. Is there a, I mean, you're from Chicago. You have to have your Colangelo. I came from an Italian neighborhood. um, And I never forgot where I came from. Great people. Because back in the day, the immigrants would go to communities because there was a friend or a relative in in either New York, Chicago, Pittsburgh, wherever they were. And they had sections in town where the Irish were and the Polish and the Germans and the Italians, whatever. Um, that's the way it was. They needed support just to get started, you know, in this country. So, yeah, there were a lot of things I saw in my old Italian neighborhood. Um, some people, most people were fine, but there were some people who weren't. And you found out early on, those are the people you stay away from. And so I wasn't oblivious. In fact, I was kind of street educated to know to make the right choices but that mm. came instinctively just by experience i think people forget about how hard italian americans especially had it and irish americans for that matter early on and this is why many of them became boxers early on because right. it was a way to fight your way out and um i look at now and did you ever think growing up in chicago you'd be a guy that not only owned franchises in phoenix but owned a nice home and and was part of a club owned by Clint Eastwood in Carmel, California, all these years later. No, no. You, 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 know, you ever I, pinch I, yourself or are you just used to this life? Yeah, I, I would say this. I don't get caught up in what I'm very, I'm, I said earlier, I've been blessed and I'm very thankful. Uh, it's been a good life. I've had a lot of great experiences, a lot of success, et cetera. But I'll never, I'll always be who I was. I'm still a kid from Hungary Hill in Chicago Heights, Illinois. Bloom, Bloom um, Township. And in my office at the arena downtown, I had 
a picture of the house that I grew up in, which was the remnants of two railroad boxcars and some additional lumber that my immigrant grandfather built this small house. And that's where I grew up. I mean, wow. that, that was my life, but I didn't know we didn't have anything. Everyone mm -hmm. in, our, in our neighborhood, I was welcome anywhere at any time. I could go in mm -hmm. and have dinner or lunch or whatever, yeah. um, but that's the way it was. And if we got out of hand, you know, the neighbor would give us a whack. I mean, right. think about things today. You, you know, you can't even say something to one of your kids without, you know, a, an issue. I'm glad I came up the way I did. It was learning the way you had the way to learn. I wish I could, could have done some of that with my kids. Brian, who you know, my son. Yes. Uh, when I was a little concerned about the fact that when we got to Phoenix, he was going to grow up a little differently than I did. Yeah, silver I wanted, spoon. I wanted to no, I wanted to throw him out there, and he he was okay. He he wasn't expecting anything. Yeah. So he was out there on the playgrounds playing ball. That's what he wanted to do, and he never he never was a problem for me that way. But for many, it's a problem. Yeah. These days, did you? When did you meet uh, Clint Eastwood? Uh, when you when you when you got to Carmel? Did you know him earlier? I met him. I met him back in the um, actually it was in the late seventies when he played in the Phoenix Open golf tournament as a ah. celebrity, and I was one of the they call them the Thunderbirds that put on that uh, tournament every year. Yeah, and yeah, I was active. They say for ten years, so I you know I got to meet a lot of people, but I also met a lot of people through the ownership of the Suns. Andy Williams, Tony Curtis, Bobby oh. Gentry, Henry Mancini, they were all they were all partners in the Suns wow. originally. And so, but I met Clint, Clint back then, and then a lot of years go by. Well, when I started going to Carmel, Clint's golf course was a new project. And I decided I was going to get a membership. And then we got reacquainted. And he's now a partner of mine. Uh, in a lot of real estate deals that we've done. And I got to tell you, at 92, you think he's 60. I mean, he is still going strong. Well, yeah, you too. I didn't realize you were 81. I mean, shoot. Uh, I uh, I mean, do, at any point, do you ever want him to like leave a message on your answering service? Like, I know what you're thinking. I got five. Like, like can't, can't you get Clint to do some impression or something? I'll tell you what we did. He, uh, we, we own a resort. We own a resort here called the the Wigwam Resort. If you ever come out to Arizona, oh. you have to experience it because it's three golf courses, nine um, tennis courts, great food, beautiful setting, and Clint has been there two, three times. Oh, I'm calling uh, you up. I'm going. And and he's playing the piano in the bar, and people are coming by, and he's he he's just a regular guy. I'm telling oh, yeah. you. Really is. Well, he's, you know, he took a lot of heat for um, uh, obviously his politics over the years. And one thing, and I really admire the social activism going on today because I think players do have a message, but it almost seems like if you're not, if you're not breathing the right message, you're, you're all of a sudden ostracized. Do you have a problem with that? Or do you think that this is just the way the world works and it's nice to see this renaissance of social conscience among athletes? Where are you on this? Well, you're a devout Christian. I know you're a devout Christian. And yes. you're very and you and this is this is yes. who you are. Well, my my thought on this whole social justice situation is is this. Absolutely, they have a forum. The players have a forum. But I'm not sure everyone's getting the right advice in how to use that forum mm. because it's a slippery slope in terms of where you're headed. And so there has to be more balance involved. Never take away the opportunity, the right for anyone to express themselves. But there has to be some strong um, thought put into what's being said. And sometimes where people get in trouble is they just talk and say things that create a real issue. And so I'm unhappy with the unrest that's existing. I'm not unhappy with the ability of our players to express themselves. I just would prefer to see them use more common sense as to what they say and when they say it, 
and kind of keep a focus on who they are truly. I, I agree. And I also think that there, there's something to be said, irrespective of what side of the aisle you're on in this country, we need to talk again. We need, we all need to talk again and we can debate fiercely the ideas of whatever it is, abortion, gun rights and all these things, but, but we need to actually have a conversation and not demonize each other. You know, I'm very involved with the university here, Grand Canyon University. Uh, the business school was named in my honor. Yes. I, I picked the last two coaches. Dan Marley was the coach I picked uh, seven years ago. And then uh, Bryce Drew, Scott Drew's brother. Wow. Uh, who, can remember, who can forget Bryce Drew, the shot? Now <laughs> he shot. takes him to the tournament. And so I speak to young people a lot because I enjoy being around young people. That's part of staying young, by the way, in my opinion. But I'll say some basic things. I'll walk mm. into a classroom, and if I see them with their head down, someone, you know, on their iPad or their iPhone, and I'm addressing them, I'll stop and say, excuse me, look at me. If I am going to spend the time to come in here and talk to you, show some respect, look mm. me in the eye, because truly in life, you can take the iPad and the iPhone and throw it away. You need to learn how to converse the people in the eye. It's about relationships. That's what this life is all about. And so common sense, that's what I try to, uh, to talk to these young people about. And I feel very comfortable, comfortable doing that. I'm just trying to be helpful and give them advice that I you know, truly believe in. My last one just... You've been so successful on so many levels. I'm I'm just proud to have spent this kind of time with you, uh, even though I've known you for years. Do you, do you have any real regrets? I mean, I look at all the guys you mentioned. Some of the people, Henry Mancini, Andy Williams, all these all these people in Americana that people forget today that are say millennials. They need to be reminded of. You, you've obviously probably been in touch with your own mortality. I mean, somebody like David Stern uh, passes away. Is there is there anything you look back on and you go shoot? I obviously overcame prostate cancer. I overcame, but but I I have a couple regrets. There's some things I either like to fix or something that I did that I wished I had. Well, Mike, I think uh, I think everyone has you know skeletons in the closet of one shape or another. I came from a broken home. Um, my father was uh, uh, not a good father. I mean, quite honestly, my mother went through the fourth grade in terms of education. Mm. I told you where we lived as, in fact, um, uh, humble beginnings. And so I had my issues with him. And um, uh, there was a lot of abuse. And one night I just had to deal with it. I was 17 years old. And uh, there could have been a fatal thing that could have happened because um, he came up the old stairs and hit the, the top stair and I hit him right be between the eyes and he went head over heels. He could have broken his neck in a heartbeat. And I threatened him. I said, if you ever touch her again, that'll be the last time. And I meant it at the time. You know, you're, when you're a young guy, you're emotional. And so I think back on that episode. Now, the good news is that ended OK, because after being <laughs> I'll tell you this story. He was gone for 10 years because some guys were looking to kill him. That's how bad things were. And so now I'm coaching. the owed him, owed him money or something? Yes. Wow. So I'm in Atlanta, and we're playing at Georgia Tech before they built the Omni. That's, I'm going way back, okay? <laughs> um, I walk in the building before the game, and there's a prelim game going on. Young kids, and I see my dad across the way, sitting with a woman and a young boy after all those years, oh, no goodness. contact. We played, I, I turned around, I didn't want to see him. Turned around, went to the locker room, got the team ready, we go out, we win the game and that game clinched the playoffs for us. So I'm doing a, an interview on the floor um, and I turned and there he was standing there and he's crying. Oh. You want to talk about an emotional moment. Um, that, that was it for me. And so ultimately, um, and he, he had left my mother who had zero, I said, fourth grade education, working in a curtain shop down the street. Um, so I've always had responsibilities. I've always had to take care mm -hmm. of my own family. 
And so I've, I've been built that way, you know, being responsible. And eventually he came to Phoenix. My mother was still alive and she forgave him for all of that. So yeah, there are things in our lives. That's one that was pretty tough. I can't even imagine. I mean, I've been through some family stuff and I, that's, I think in some ways it made you um, realize that um, you wanted to be a different father. For sure. Some, when young people hit that, you know, break in the road, you can go one way or you can go to the other. Yeah. There was no doubt. I wanted to be a different person, a different father that I experienced. And I think I've been able to do that with my kids and my grandkids. Mm. I've kept most of them around me this whole time. We have 10 grandkids. Mm. I have four great grandkids now. And um, I try to give them those life lessons all the time. Yeah, that's that's what a story. Did your father pass? Uh, he did. Uh, yeah. He, he passed a few years later. He, My mother never saw the baseball. She loved basketball. She, yeah. she was at every game. Um, but she just yeah. missed the start of the D-backs first season. My dad saw yeah. a couple of years of baseball, and uh, so he passed too. And, you know, life goes on. I want to tell you this uh, about the World Series. Yeah. Um, before the first game of the World Series, all the media was in, in Phoenix. Yeah. And everyone had their moments. to They wanted to interview me, and, you know, I'll, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, Jerry, um, you know, you're the fastest team ever to get to the World Series. How do, how do you feel about that? I said, we're excited. Uh, we're thrilled. And who better to be playing than the most famous team in the history of baseball if we're going to win our first championship, the, the Yankees? Next guy said, are you predicting you're going to win? And I said, no. But I, here's if I had my druthers, here's what will happen. And I swear, this was in the paper. The series will go seven games. We're going to win it in front of our, we would win it in front of our crowd in the ninth inning with the bases loaded, two outs, and Gonzo at the plate. Come on. I swear. I'm looking that up. That's incredible. You you can. You can look it up. No, it all happened except there was one out, not two outs. And what you (laughs) refer to, Mariano. Yeah, right. World's greatest ever. Oh, he was. People used to think Dennis Eckersley was the greatest saver that ever. Boy, when Mariano Rivera came along, there was nothing like him. So so picture this. I'm sitting next to the dugout. That's where my seats were, you know, up about four yeah. rows. As, as the ninth inning is unfolding, I'm sitting there and I said, you know, God, you have, you have a funny sense of humor. I have struggled my whole life to get something I never – I've had a lot but I couldn't get the NBA championship. And here we are in baseball. We're about to win a World Series because I just knew at that moment it was happening. Wow. wow. So that's, very, that's incredible. Yeah. Uh, th- thank you for all this. This has been, shoot, Jeannie Buss had me crying one day. You just had me uh, wiping my tears away. Uh, it just, it, like you said, throw out all the accolades. It's about relationships. And I'm I'm glad to have one with you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. That was dope. Thanks to my guest, Jerry Colangelo, and my producer, Bruce Bernstein, who's clearly a part of the show. Bruce, hit us with the promos. Thank you, Mike. Jerry Colangelo, how great was he? I mean, can that man tell a story or what? (laughs) (laughs) So, Uh, yeah, we we appreciated all the time that he spent with us. And I know people who listened to this really enjoyed it, too. Thanks also, in addition to Jerry, our incredible editor, Kristen Woolley. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops Media shows, Full Court with Jenny Fisher and Kara Kay, The Best in College Hoop Beach Tuesday, Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin every Wednesday, Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure. Drops on Thursday. BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman have the Pure Hoops podcast each Friday. And of course, my man, Mike, has a new Mike Wise show every Monday. And please, yeah, holla, Mike. And please check out our YouTube channel with 
dozens of great segments, including Mike's incredible conversations with Lakers Governor Jeannie Buss, Bucks owner Mark Lazary, and the very last sit-down interview that the late Commissioner David Stern did with Mike back in late 2019. Go to YouTube and search for Pure Hoops Media. Mike. Bruce, we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. I think about a quarter of the country is now vaccinated at least once. But look, there's new variants. Uh, there's, there's, there's spikes in certain places. So when you qualify for the vaccine, please get it. But until the country reaches herd immunity, keep your guard up and wear the mask in public to protect yourself and others. Do the whole wash your hands, keep your distance, still be considerate of others. And if you know a nurse, doctor, or a frontline worker, you know, this heroism stuff isn't over yet. Tell them thanks and keep them in your prayers. And until next time, peace. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.